just have to share the story with you because I, I really had a good giggle. Um, the naughty, some naughty ladies met together yesterday, as is their custom on a Saturday afternoon, and Tani Anaki, who was a nurse all her life, tells them the story of this new um, learning nurse, whatever they would call them, who uh, she assigned a job to. She was in an old, home, old age facility or looking after older people. So she told this new nurse when she got there for duty to go and wash all the old people's false teeth. And she went on her rounds to go and check what she, what, you know, if this person was going around from room to room and mouth to mouth and doing what she needs to do. And what this young nurse had done was take all the old people's teeth, put them in a bowl and was washing them. <laughs> but that wasn't the funny thing. The funny thing was trying to identify what teeth belonged in what mouths after that. And eventually I think they called in a dentist to assist because <laughs> there was a whole lot of toothless smiles. Which just reminds me of the story of the, the pastor who preached for... 10 minutes or 5 minutes one morning and that was it. You could see he was in obvious distress and he dismissed the congregation and the next Sunday they came back and he preached for 10 minutes but it was also still quite below his normal 15 or 20 minutes but he dismissed the congregation again. And the next Sunday he comes back, he went on for 2 hours. So one of his dear congregants came to him afterwards and said, Pastor, I don't understand. The first day, you, I mean, three weeks ago, you preached five minutes, then you preached ten minutes, and today you went on for two hours. He said, my dear, I had new false teeth made. And the first Sunday, they really hurt me. The next Sunday, they were feeling a lot better. And today, I accidentally picked up my wife's when I left home. <laughs> Sorry, ladies. <laughs> Okay. We continue our journey through looking at our biblical stories. Last week we had a look at the water into wine, and today we're going to be having a look at some lessons from Jesus being rejected in Nazareth, Nazareth uh, by his own people. Remembering Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. It's the place where he learned his trade, where he plied his trade. We often regard Jesus and speak of him as the carpenter. Well, the Greek word for carpenter is actually master builder. So he was a lot more than just a carpenter. He would have been a jack of all trades. He would have been a mason and a carpenter and all sorts of things. Uh, there wasn't much wood in Palestine anyway in that area, so it's not, he wouldn't have had too much wood if he just was a carpenter. But it would have been part of his job. Anyway, that's where he grew up, and this is the time after he's been out in the desert, after he's come back, and clearly after the first miracle, which was the one we looked at last week in Cana, he's now come back to his hometown at Nazareth. So if you'll read with me in Luke chapter 4, and I'm reading from verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Very good custom to have, going to the church or the synagogue 
every single week. Jesus had the custom. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what you have heard that what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Ha, and then he starts laying into them. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was clean, cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue, they were all thinking he was the best thing since Mari Biscuits before this. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of the town and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd, another miracle, and went on his way. Let us pray. Lord, we commit this word to you this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being able to hear and read this word this morning, your word. Thank you that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And thank you that this morning you will come uh, and do what needs to be done in our own hearts, separating the bad from the good, so that we can bring glory to your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> Jesus returns to his town, this town that he grew up in, and he starts in this town, in this area, his public ministry. One Saturday, he goes to the synagogue, and he stands up and reads this famous messianic passage from the prophet Isaiah. He finishes the prophecy, one that the Jewish people had read for over 700 years. And he identifies himself as the one spoken of by this that he has just read. Can you imagine? You've grown up with this guy. You were in school together or whatever. He's the son of Joseph and Mary. They're just ordinary folks. There was no mention at this stage of Joseph. We presume, we don't know what happened to Joseph. We presume he died at Jesus' first miracle. Mary seems to be head of the house by that stage. 
But here's Jesus after 30-something years in Nazareth in, amongst his own people, goes off into the desert, and he is tempted for that time. Then he comes back and starts publicly ministering, and eventually he gets back to Nazareth, his hometown. Initially, they embraced him. Initially, he's the hero because he's their homeboy that comes back to them and about which they've heard so many good things. Till he reads God's word, until he points to the word and points to himself, and they become very, very angry. He also points to past Hebrew generations that also, like them, doubted the scriptures and the prophets. And then things turned sour. Then they got really furious. They took exception to this one who was from amongst themselves making these grandiose claims. They get up, they drove him out of the town, they take him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him over the cliff. But the Bible fortunately says he walked right through. His time had not yet come like he told his mother the week that when we looked at the miracle last week. See, Nazareth at that stage was famous really for only one thing, and that was that it was the hometown of Jesus. That's the only claim to fame that they had then. The village seemed to have been held in some, some contempt in first century Palestine. It was a nondescript dot on the map with not much to offer. It was overshadowed by a, a luxury city called Zephorus, or Zephori in Hebrew. It was only about six kilometers away of a city that had been refurbished by Herod Antipas just a few years before that. It was a, it was a bustling metropolis of excitement and all sorts of things. So in comparison, Nazareth was really the back end of nowhere. Remember the story last week we mentioned Nathaniel, no, maybe that was with the dedication. Nathaniel, Philip finds Nathaniel and says, come, we have found the Messiah, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So this town is one of real contempt at this time. And I think the, the reason Luke begins his gospel really with this story or with this miracle is that it's really an overview, a, a cameo, a picture of what happens in the ministry of Jesus. See, he comes to his own people. He reveals himself as the promised Messiah, but they reject him. So what happens? The gospel goes to the Gentiles. And that's what we see in the gospel of Luke. Remember, these are not pagans Jesus is preaching to. These are very religious people. These are people who are in church on the Sabbath, in the synagogue. It's not the Gentiles rejecting him as the Messiah. It's the chosen people of God that want to kill him. Much like us here today. Most of us would regard ourselves, regard ourselves as being religious, not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense. We wouldn't be here if we didn't have some semblance of religiosity. If it wasn't our religion, our faith that drew us into this place. Sitting here listening to this sermon, 
Maybe one of the things we can learn from the story, and this isn't one of the lessons, is that being religious doesn't guarantee that we truly accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like they rejected him, they did not accept him. If anything, I think being religious increases the danger that we will reject him for the same reasons, and we're going to talk about those, that those people rejected him then. It was the religious crowd that not only reacted against his sermon, that the religious crowd went straight from the church and tried to murder him. I'm hoping that's not the outcome of the service today. <laughs> but we've still got to be careful to examine our own hearts so that we are not like the people who were in church that day and heard and saw the living word and rejected him. Only two lessons for this morning, you'll be pleased to know because it's so hot. Lesson number one, that the story teaches me that submission to Jesus and the word is simply non-negotiable. See, there's usually a veneer of religiosity. There's usually a, a facade, a, a covering of commitment. But there's often no true submission to Jesus and to his word. There is some submission, but it's usually submission on our terms. So we're happy to submit to the word, and we're happy to submit to the living word, to Jesus, but it's, it's on our conditions. Don't come and move us around or rattle our cages, or we will submit according to ourselves. The story, let's go back to the story, the news had spread. Jesus was obviously gaining fame in the area. The Bible says everybody praised him. Probably at this point, the people of Nazareth were proud of this hometown boy of theirs who was becoming famous. And soon it was Nazareth's turn. And everyone turned up at the synagogue that day. The synagogue probably originated during Babylonian captivity. Remember when the Babylonians had come down, they destroyed the temple. So these synagogues or places of instruction and worship popped up all over the place. It served as a center, local center for worship, instruction every week, some similar to this here today, even after the temple had been rebuilt. Now typically, a synagogue service, just for a little bit of background, consisted of the reciting of the Shema, uh, the, the Shema are some verses which we'll look at now, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema was always uh, at, the, at the doorpost of a, of a Jewish person's house. Even today, if you go anywhere near a house and you see a little scroll rolled up, it's called a mezuzah, and it's normally placed at the entrance of a Jewish person's home. And inside there is rolled up a little scroll, and written on that scroll are the following verses. This is just background for interest. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. So this is what they would have read every single Sabbath day. In fact, they did it several times a day. But on the Sabbath, this would have already been read before Jesus even stood up to do his mini-sermon. These commandments that I give you are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Just be completely consumed with loving God. 
tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. We still see Orthodox Jews today with these phylacteries bound on their foreheads and the things hanging from their, their um, you know, garments. Write them on the door frames of your houses, which is that little mezuzah they put there now, and on your gates. So they would recite the Shema. They would have several prayers. They would have a reading from the law. They would have a reading from the prophets. They would then have instruction on the passage, and that's where we see Jesus reading from the prophet bit. They'd already have done some of these other things. He reads from the prophets. He gives an instruction, and afterwards there would have been a benediction, which they probably missed on this particular Sabbath. So any qualified male could lead the scripture, read it, and expound on it, and Jesus stood up to do this. There is debate about whether he deliberately chose the passage from Isaiah 61 or not, and I've heard some real fanciful sermons about how Jesus just took the scroll and miraculous, it was at the place, it was open there. But Luke doesn't imply this. Luke actually says he found the place where it was written. So he specifically goes to this deliberately to say this is the fulfillment of it. The initial response was favorable. Again, verse 22, all spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips, probably while they were still absorbing it and trying to understand what he was saying. And as sermon critics, they probably gave this homegrown boy a good mark on his delivery and style. Not bad, I can see why we've been hearing good reports about the young man. He's a polished speaker. I mean, you can just imagine what's going on. But it wasn't long before those agreeing, nodding heads stopped and their approving smiles turned to frowns. Who does he think he is making these claims about fulfilling the scripture? How can he apply the scripture to us? We're not poor. We're not slaves, we're not blind, we're not oppressed. We are the chosen, selected people of God. How dare he imply that he can be our savior as if we even needed one. If he really is so great, why doesn't he do some of the miracles that we heard he supposedly did somewhere else in Capernaum? Maybe we then would believe him. So where they were initially impressed with Jesus' style, they then took offense to the substance of his message. The very thought that they, the chosen people of God, should submit to him was just not going to happen. So shoo, their offense turned to rage and rejection and murderous intentions. Even though it came right out of their own scriptures. Jesus brought up, when he brought up the stories of Elijah and Elisha and applied it to them, they couldn't deal with it. See, the point of both of those stories was the same. Israel at the time was at a point of all-time low idolatry and moral corruption. And God told Elijah to pray. It wouldn't rain. It didn't rain. For, and famine came on the land. But then God needed to provide for Elijah. Lots of widows in Israel. But where does he send Elijah? He sends her to a widow in Sidon. Not Jewish people. Not the people of God. To a Gentile. To provide for the powerful, 
prophet of God, the Elijah, a Gentile woman, looks after him. The story with Elisha is exactly the same. Lots of people with leprosy in Israel at the time. But who does Elisha heal? Naaman, a general in the army of the enemy of Israel. So these folks listening are now properly worked up and offended. They were offended, I think, for two reasons. Firstly, because God is able to sovereignly choose those on whom he bestows his mercy. And no one, not even the chosen people of God, can demand his grace. Because at best, we are all undeserving sinners. If God chooses to go outside of Israel and bestow his blessing on a widow in Sidon, or a general in Syria, while withholding blessing, yes, withholding blessing from Israel, God is perfectly and sovereignly free to do that. In their minds, Almighty God is not being fair if he goes outside of them. They are the chosen people, but yet they've missed the scripture, and Ezekiel, their own scripture, which says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Their very own Bible taught them that, but they refused to accept it. See, this doctrine that God is free to, to show mercy to whoever he wants to is quite offensive to religious people, people who go to church every day, people who can't understand why do some of these other people who are not even believers, why are they looking like they're so blessed and we are so struggling? I'll tell you why. God is sovereign and he can do whatever he likes, but I'll tell you what's actually happening. Your heart is being shown to be the heart of those people who sat in the synagogue in Nazareth on that Sabbath. How can God do that? God can do whatever he wants to do and whenever he wants to. He is God. He is Lord of all. And they just could not submit to that. Not to the word and certainly not to this little homegrown boy, Jesus, who's actually the living word. The other reason they probably couldn't accept or they were so offended is because not only was God entitled to show mercy to whomever he wants, but the stories also showed that God is actually pleased to bestow, actually bestow his blessing on those pagans. The widow in Sidon, the Naaman, the Syrian, they were pagans. They were not believers. They were not God's people. They were unchurched, unspoken for. They were just the other people. It's easy for us, isn't it, to grow conceited and to think, I'm really something because I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm not like those people. I'm not like the people who don't come to church. I'm not like the people who do this and do, I'm not like that. And it grows up in our hearts in an instant if we are not careful. That person's not as good as me. They're a pagan. 
See, we need to realize that God shows his mercy to one kind of person only, and that is to sinners. To those who recognize that wicked condition of their own hearts. And it's just a never-ending struggle until the day that he calls us home or comes to fetch us. Oh, we are clothed in the righteousness of God. Yes, we are a chosen people and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people belonging to God. We are all of those things, no doubt. But the moment we think we are something special based upon ourselves, we are in the same state those people were in that day in the synagogue. Now, it's easy to accept Jesus sometimes on a superficial level. We hear that God loves us and Jesus cares for all our needs, and that's true, and we welcome him into our lives. But at some point, some stage, normally earlier on in our walk, we begin to get a bit uncomfortable as we realize that Jesus' teaching actually confronts us, confronts our pride and our self-righteousness. See, once we come to Jesus, and once we make him Lord of our lives, it's not about us anymore. It's not about what he can do for us. It's not about the new boat that he can buy for me, or the new car that I can drive, or the fancy food I can eat. It's not about me. When I come to Jesus, I come to him as Lord, in total submission to his word. And that word confronts my self-righteousness and my pride on a daily basis. I can tell you I struggle with pride on a daily basis, if I'm honest with myself. Thinking there's something good inside of me. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. When are we going to get a hold of that? Rather than building up our self-esteem, Jesus begins shining the light of his holiness into those dark nether regions of our souls. Romans 7, 18 starts making sense. The Apostle Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Goes on to say, the good I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. That's honesty. Sometimes we need to get honest with ourselves. You see, at any point in your life, you have a crucial decision to make. You can decide to dodge the hard truths of the Bible, either by throwing out the whole thing, or as many, as many people do, or finding a church where the truth is not spoken, where you can just be more comfortable and not want to take the pastor out onto the brow of the hill to push him over the edge because you're so angry at what was just said. We have a choice. We can move around and do whatever we like, just like those people had. Or maybe you want to sit and listen to old Smiley Joe and find out that your best life is now and everything's wonderful and hunky-dory and, you know, it's all about you, you, you and what you can do and what you can achieve. Let me tell you, friends, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely saturated with wolves in sheep's clothing today. 
people who stroke your ego, people who sell you their books and their magazines and their tapes and everything else to try and make you rich and wealthy and healthy and hunky-dory and everything's wonderful. That is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of Christ puts a finger upon the wickedness in our hearts every single moment of every day. The moment I start thinking there's something good in me, I'm in trouble. See, you can choose God's way, even today. And how many came here, religious people, good church folk? How many people watching me right now online? The fact that you're watching me, you are religious people, you know. You, you want to serve God and you want to do stuff. I want to encourage you, choose God's way. Face that truth about yourself and submit to the word as Jesus Christ, as Lord. Not you. It's not about you. It's about you until you get saved. Your life is about you until you're born again. But that moment I give my life to Christ, I've given my life to Christ. I'm no longer mine. I'm now hidden in him and he is hidden in me. Jesus didn't beat around the bush with these people. After reading Isaiah's prophecy, he plainly declares, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a staggering claim. Those Isaiah's words of 700 years ago, he's saying, today that's fulfilled in me. He says, look to me, the one sent from the Father, God's salvation, the wholeness of God to the world. Those terms, poor, prisoners, blind, oppressed, are primarily spiritual in meaning, always. Jesus is telling them, this is what you are. You need me. He declares the year of the Lord's favor. It's a reference to the Jewish year of Jubilee, where debts were canceled and slaves were set free. It was a spiritual picture of the day or time of God's salvation. So Jesus not merely proclaims the good news as God's anointed prophet. He is the good news. He is the one who would offer himself as God's sin bearer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And his hearers that day were happy to acknowledge him as Joseph's son. But they refused to accept him as God's son. Sometimes we're happy to accept him as Joseph's son. We're happy to know that Jesus came. We're even happy to know that he died and he rose again. And we're happy to accept all of that. But we're not happy to submit to him completely. The point is to accept God's good news, you have to accept Jesus as he is, as he claimed to be Lord and Christ and to be in complete submission to him. If you accept him merely as a nice savior who helps you to be happy, but you do not submit to him as Lord, you're not accepting him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. That receiving implies submitting in totality to him. It's not a matter of just receiving him like you would receive air in your lungs, as I've heard sometimes erroneously taught. It's got to do with a total submission to him. 
James says, don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Well, I try and forget what I look like after I've seen what I look like in a mirror. You know, it's a deliberate thing. But, but keep with the context. But the man who looks intently, the perfect law, the word of God that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard but doing it, will be blessed in what he does. Hallelujah. So, Jesus came as God's anointed savior. We need to accept him as he claimed to be. Submission to him and or as the word. It's non-negotiable. Lesson number one. Our time is up and I'm going to start lesson number two. Told you there are only two lessons today. It's so hot. <laughs> you happy for me to carry on? Yes, thank you. Okay, so if not for his mercy, our condition is hopeless. And I've kind of alluded to this. But let me just beat it up a bit more. The folks in Jesus' audience like to think of themselves as basically good people. I mean, most of us here today would think, oh, I'm basically a good person. And my standard of measure is somebody else. That's where I fall short. If my standard of my own goodness is not based upon God's goodness, his mercy, and what he's written about me in his word, I'm wasting my time. After all, these were Jews. They weren't pagan sinners. I mean, didn't the fact that they were in synagogue that day show that they were good people? And yet their own scriptures told them what they, were, they actually were. There's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Then along comes this young whippersnapper who implies that God's message is for the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed or downtrodden, which they actually were. They had more self-respect than to see themselves like that. And then he goes further and implies that God's actually taking his blessings to the Gentiles of all the nerve. He grew up here amongst us. Of course, the irony is that even though they saw themselves as basically good religious folks, they got so angry at Jesus' convicting message that they left their church service in a rage with the intent of killing him. These good religious folks were about to kill him. They had embraced him and smiled at him, and in an instant they wanted him dead. I think Jesus allowed them to lead them, lead him to the brow of that hill intentionally to give them an opportunity to reveal what was actually going on in their hearts, which clearly they never got. And then he just walked through the midst of them. It seems to us that they should have seen they weren't basically good people. They should have understand that. I mean, they were good as long as no one confronted their true heart condition. But as soon as Jesus exposed them for what they really were, they rose up to destroy him. Now, don't look at judgment in them. Look at your own hearts. Think about how often you use yourself as a mart stock, a measuring rod, uh, the baseline for seeing what other people are like. 
I'm not as bad as. I don't do this. I, 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 I. And it's all about me. You're not even born again, dear person here today. If your life is about you, you've missed the plot completely. Isn't this what happens in any given church? Usually as long as the message strokes the ego of the listener, all is good. But the moment sin is exposed through the word, those same people are ready to murder. In the United States of America, which is a godless country at the moment, absolute God, absolutely godless. They are leading the world in godlessness at the moment. Do you know the average pastorate there is about a year and a half? And the pastor's fired. Because the moment pastor starts talking about anything that ruffles the cages a little bit, they become angry and the guy just gets fired. Over 40% of pastors right now would leave the ministry if they could. And why? Because as soon as they speak the word of God, they're in trouble. As soon as they don't line up with Hollywood, or what the leftist agenda is, or anything else. As soon as they don't do that, they're in trouble. I'd rather have the trouble. The heart condition of people in and out the church is so similar sometimes to those people of Nazareth. One has a facade of religiosity. The people outside, I mean, there's no difference. I think the religious people are just often a lot more nasty than the non-religious people. We need to realize we are poor, we are spiritually destitute, we are bankrupt before God. We cannot buy our way into heaven, we've got nothing to offer him. We can only receive from him. We are captives, we are spiritually enslaved to sin, we are under the domain of the kingdom of darkness, we are unable to free ourselves from the wicked tyrant who rules this evil world, and we are unable ever to extricate ourselves from the sin that holds us in power, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, just like those folk and Jesus read about, we are spiritually unable to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ unless he does it, unless he opens our eyes. We are also oppressed or downtrodden. That word oppressed means shattered or broken in pieces. We are not in a good state before God. And if it wasn't for his mercy, our condition is hopeless. The main thing that keeps people from ever seeing God is pride. God opposes the proud. He resists them. The church, not the pagan group, the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3, the people, Jesus is saying, you say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. This is talking to the church. But you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Their assessment of themselves was, as a church, this is a Christian church, their assessment was, we are rich, we've become wealthy, we have need of nothing. God's assessment, you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. But the good news is, when God opens your eyes to see your true condition, that's the first step towards receiving the good news. If you know you're destitute and someone offers you a million rand, that's good news. 
when you know you're spiritually poor and God offers to freely forgive all your sins through Christ Jesus, that's the greatest news in the whole world. And there's no other news even worth listening to. The church today is so wrong. Come to Jesus and all your problems will go. No, no, quite the opposite. You are full of problems. And only when you see that, you are able to receive him. And he's able to help you. Paul writes to Titus, and he says, at one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved in all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness of love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Saving us through the washing of rebirth, renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out generously through Christ our Lord, uh, Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Friends, if it's not for his mercy, our condition is hopeless. Our lessons, submission to Jesus and the word, non-negotiable. If not for his mercy, our condition is hopeless. If you are familiar with Jesus, as you would be coming to church, I want to encourage you to be careful to make sure you apply his teaching and his word to your own heart. Not looking at others, looking to your own heart. The people of Nazareth were not receptive to Jesus in part because they were too familiar with him. This was the homegrown boy. They knew he who was. They couldn't conceive of him as Lord and Savior. That happens sometimes in our lives when we become too familiar with the word, too familiar with the things of God. Don't allow it to happen. But more important, not more importantly, as importantly, if you reject Jesus today, you might never have another opportunity to receive him. See, the people of Nazareth rejected Jesus, so he passed through their midst and he went on his way. Most scholars feel he never went back to Nazareth again. Rejection of the gospel can be final and it can be fatal. It's not about whether you know Jesus. It's about whether he knows you. Did we not say, Lord, Lord, we did this and Lord, Lord, we did that and that? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. The scripture we read in the beginning was the one whom God knows is the one who loves God. Are you known by God? Do you know that God knows you? It's interesting that when Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah, and I'm going to finish now, he stopped in the middle of a verse after reading it. He said to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, but he didn't finish that verse. This is the rest of the verse in Isaiah 61. The next phrase reads, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why did he stop in the middle? Well, quite simply, because he came the first time to bring the good news. The next time he comes, he comes with vengeance. God is not soft on sinners. Psalm 7, 11, 5, 5, elsewhere. He is angry with sinners every day. 
And people at this stage, we think, how can all this bad stuff be happening? How can all these people getting, be getting away with it? Let me promise you this one thing, and I never make promises, is that the word of God is true. God does not like, lie. The day of vengeance is coming. The day will come when God will pour out his wrath on every single living person and dead person who has rejected him in this life. And that's my encouragement. If you're here today, don't allow Jesus to pass by you. If you're watching me by media today, I encourage you, don't let Jesus walk past you today because it might be that he never comes knocking on the door of your heart again. You know what I'm saying is the truth. Person, wherever you might be, I want to encourage you. If you've never accepted Jesus, and right now you know in your heart of hearts, God has opened your eyes, you see. You know in your heart of hearts that you need a Savior. I'm going to invite you just to ask Jesus to forgive your sin. Ask him, Lord, forgive my sin. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And then ask him to come and to be Lord of your life. Tell him you're going to submit to him from now on. Not to yourself, not to your flesh, not to your wills and your desires and your anything else. But to him and to him alone. And know the joy and peace that God brings to the heart that he has touched in that way. Today is the day of salvation. You might not have tomorrow.